The series we're wrapping up today is a series called The Cross-Shaped Life. This is part seven of seven. If you missed the first six, don't worry about it, okay? So don't worry about it. You're not behind. It's not a comprehensive exam. Every message stands on its own, all right? So you're not behind, don't worry. And this one's about a particular subject I'm gonna get to in a second. But I wanna set the table here by saying what we mean with the cross-shaped life is simply that once you believe in Jesus, once you come around and decide, hey, maybe this Jesus guy's for real, there's something else that's supposed to happen. And it's not you just going to church. And that's often the way we put it, especially preachers, because it's very convenient for us to tell you, well, what comes next is you go to church and you give us all your money. Like that's the easiest thing for us and most self-interested thing for us to say. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus did not come down from heaven and die on a cross to make you a churchgoer. He came down from heaven and died on a cross to make you like him. And so there's this process the Bible calls sanctification or or what we're calling Christian character formation by which the, the Holy Spirit of God comes into your heart by your free will invitation. Once you believe in Jesus, you say, Holy Spirit, come and change me. Come into my heart, change me from within. And the Holy Spirit works on you to remake your character, who you are at your core until it is a reflection of Christ. And so the the end game here is not your behinds in seats, in, in the right seats on Sunday mornings. The end goal here is you every day looking a little bit more like Jesus. And church is a part of that. Church is a great part of that. In some ways, church is a necessary part of that. But church is not the end goal, all right? You're not gonna get to heaven and they're gonna be like, tell me where you were every Sunday morning of your life. Like, that's not what they're gonna ask you. They will ask you some questions though. And I want us to be prepared. So we're talking about what it means to have the character of Christ. We've talked about a cross-shaped marriage, cross-shaped masculinity. We've talked about cross-shaped forgiveness and conflict. Pastor Gio preached about the cross-shaped legacy we leave behind. Last week, I talked about what it means to struggle like Jesus, the cross-shaped struggle. And today, we're rounding out this series with everyone's favorite subject. You all woke up this morning saying to yourself, I hope he talks about money today. So we have to do this. The cross-shaped budget is where we'll round out this series, all right? Um, even though uh, it's, it's often one of the main reasons people leave churches. Skeptics have often said in studies, I don't go to church. I don't want to go to church because all they ever talk about is money. All right? So there's some disconnect in people's minds between what they like about Jesus and what churches are saying about money. Maybe they, they just don't want to think about their money. They'll give everything else, their heart, their time, their emotions, but their money is... is I don't know why, but there's, there's several reasons why it's uncomfortable for us to, to talk about money. Here's the thing. Jesus leaves us no option. Jesus talked more about money than any other subject. He talked more about money than sex, sexual sin. He talked more about money than marriage. He talked more about money than even like kindness and being a good person. He talked more about money than anything else. And so how could we round out this series about the character of Christ without mentioning money? So we got to figure out what it means to have a cross-shaped budget. I think one of the mm, misunderstandings 
or misapprehensions that we have about Jesus and money is that uh, churches have often been heavy-handed in our asking. Because (laughs) I know about half of you right now are are cynical like me. If I was you, I'd be thinking the same thing. At the end of this, he's going to ask us for something. There's a capital campaign at the end of this sermon. And I know what you're thinking, because every time churches talk about money, there's a big ask. And that's another way that churches can be self-interested. And that's not what this is. There will not be a big ask, ask at the end of this sermon, okay? There will not be a capital campaign announcement at the end of this message. We're not even gonna pass the plate at the end of this message. Have you noticed? We haven't passed a plate at the story since February of 2020. All right, no applause. Anyway, I'm upset about it, okay? So somehow still, God's made a way. Through your generosity, the generosity of our members, thank you, by the way, God has made a way. You know, the story is not reliant on any other organizations. No other churches give us money. No denomination gives us money. It's us. And even without plates being passed, God has spoken to your hearts and some of you have responded. And so this is not about that. There will be no plates passed. There will be no capital campaign commitment Sunday thing announced. Nothing like that. It's just Jesus and us and our money. Okay, another, another misconception that we have is that Jesus just didn't have time uh, for all that money stuff. Like he was above it. Jesus was anti-money, we think to ourselves, right? He didn't spend money. He didn't need money. He never asked for money. It was Jesus, after all, who said that money's the root of all evil, right? No, thank you. Okay, no, he didn't say that at all. He didn't say anything like that. The apostle Paul wrote to his friend Timothy that the love of money is the root of all evil. But as far as Jesus goes, we're looking at a man who understood money. He made money. Like like he, (laughs) double meaning, it just occurred to me. Like he's a creator. He made money. But while he lived on earth, he made money at a job, working construction. For most of his adult life, the last part of his life on earth, the three years or so that he was in full-time ministry, he still relied on the financial generosity of his followers. And we have evidence of this, that Jesus asked for money and received it from his followers, in particular, his female followers who bankrolled his ministry. We have this little hint that Luke gives us that I love so much, these little tidbits that give us windows into Jesus's life. Luke chapter eight, verses one to three Go like this. After this, Jesus traveled around from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. So Jesus is taking his ministry on the road, which takes what? Money. In that world, the same as this one. The 12 were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Go back a slide, please. That one, thank you. This is cool to me. Like, not only did Jesus generally rely on the money of his uh, his financial generosity of his followers to do his ministry, spread the gospel, not only were many of these followers women who financed Jesus out of their own means, but what's really amazing about this little tidbit is one of Jesus's mortal enemies on earth, King Herod, the one who beheaded Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist, was unwittingly bankrolling Jesus's ministry by way of Joanna, 
probably the coolest chick in the whole Bible. Like she's taking Herod's money and she's funding Jesus with it. I want to meet this woman in heaven one day. She seems like my type of gal. I like that. So Joanna's taking Herod's money, funding Jesus. So listen, Jesus knew money. He understood money. He used money. But obviously he had a problem with the way the religious leaders were conducting themselves as far as money was concerned. He didn't like the way they were guilting everyday people into giving more of their money. But it's very important that we parse this out. Jesus didn't have a problem with them teaching people to be generous or with them being generous themselves. What they had a problem, what he had a problem with was their hearts. Okay, so this is a good example of this, Matthew 23, verse 23. And this is where Jesus is teaching or talking to the, the hypocrites, guys like me, preachers. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices. That's a financial offering, um, meant Dylan Cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now, is he saying that you should just do justice and mercy and faithfulness and not give the tenth of what you have? No, it's not what he's saying. He's saying you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And so the problem Jesus had with them wasn't that they were talking about money or encouraging people to give or being generous themselves. The problem with them was the heart of the matter, that they were giving money and then they were uh, living in pride without pursuing justice or faithfulness because they were giving all that money. Jesus knew so well better than any of us do. He knew so well how easy it is and how almost inevitable it is for religious people to write our checks to churches and charity each month and then to still be wrapped and wrapped up in the sin of greed. To, you, you can write a check to this church or any church every single month of your life and still suffer with greed. And Jesus wanted you to see that. He wanted us to see that because it's such an insidious thing, greed. Greed works so differently on us. It is so sneaky the way greed works on us. You know, like, like the, the problem with greed is that no one ever knows they're greedy when they're being greedy. It's not like every other sin. Let me give you some, some, just drill down a little bit here. So I am a pastor. I've been a pastor for quite some time, years now. And, and when you're a pastor, people tell you stuff and they let you in on secrets in their lives and they, they share their deepest and darkest, darkest stuff with you. And that's just part of the job. And, and, uh, and you know, it hurts and you carry it around with you, but, but that's what we're here for. And once in a while, I'll get an email or a text like, Pastor Eric, I'm falling apart. My life's crashing down around me. Can we meet? And I'm like, I'm available three Thursdays from now. It's like, the, no, now. And so I'm like, okay, I'll just re rearrange my lunch and, and all, whatever, I'm just, come on. And they'll come and sit in my office and, and, and sit in my chair and they'll look at me, tears in their eyes, and they'll just tell me all kinds of things. You wouldn't believe the things that I've heard. I think I've heard it all. I think I have. People sit, come and tell me everything from, I just, I don't believe anymore. The stuff I used to believe, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. They'll come in there and they'll tell me all kinds of sins. Like I'm struggling with an addiction to whatever. You fill in the blank. I've heard of every addiction. I'm struggling with an addiction to video games. I'm struggling with an addiction to pornography. I'm struggling with a sex addiction. I'm struggling with a uh, marijuana addiction, 
One person said, I'm struggling with a Molly addiction. I didn't know what that was. I pretended to, but I Googled it. Apparently, like, that's what that was. I didn't know what Miley Cyrus had been singing about all those years. And apparently, it's a drug. So anyway, it's ecstasy, if you don't know. So that's an addiction. And you learn something new every day, right? And so the, the things you hear, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a liar. I'm having an affair. I cheated on my wife. I, I, uh, I stole from my work. I'm a thief. You hear all these things, and just when you think you've heard it all, you read Jesus' words about greed, and you realize there's one thing you've never heard. Y'all, there's one thing I've never heard anyone say. There's one sin. Even the recovering Catholics we have at the story have never confessed to this sin, all right? I've never had anyone text me in the morning and be like, I'm falling apart, Eric. I need to see you. I'm coming in right now. And they come into my office, and they sit in my chair, and never— has anyone said with tears in their eyes, Pastor Eric, my, my life's falling apart. Everything's falling down around me. You've got to help me. I'm in trouble. And I say, what's going on? And, and never has anyone said, I'm just, I'm greedy. <laughs> never, never. I'm just so, so greedy. And the reason that it's funny to me is because it's so absurd to think about anyone saying that. Not because it wouldn't be true, but because that's how greed works. It convinces us we don't struggle with it. And it, it like, like no other sin, you know, like people, people don't see it. And it's because every single one of us has in our lives one person who's greedier than us. And that's all you need. And maybe that's why you're their friend. Like they let you off the hook. If you have one person who's greedier than you, you're not greedy. You are, you totally are. I'm just, I'm talking you through your own justification, right? Like, it doesn't matter how much you have. If you have one person in your life who has more than you, then they're the ones who struggle with greed. And some of you have already been thinking, well, the greed sermon, I hope, I hope so-and-so's listening. <laughs> That's how it works. This isn't for me. This isn't, this isn't my battle. Like you're holier than thou. I know how greed works. This isn't my struggle, but someone here needs to listen. Like that means, that means it's your problem, okay? That's the worst possible reaction to the greed sermon, okay? Because of how insidious a sin greed is. But if you have just one person who serves finer wine at their parties than you do, or takes nicer vacations than you do, or has better cars than you, then you think you're off the hook, and that's not how it works. It's sneaky. Why Jesus is always saying, be careful because people who struggle with greed don't see it when it's happening. It's not like stealing. Like nobody ever robbed a bank and halfway between the bank and the getaway car, they're like, wait a minute, <laughs> this isn't mine. <laughs> no one ever goes, this money belongs to someone else. No, no one ever, you know, has adult, commits adultery. In the act of committing adultery, you look down and you go, whoa, you're not my wife. Like no one ever does this with other sins, but greed is shocking. It's surprising. It's sneaky. And you don't know you're doing it when you're doing it. That's why Jesus is so, uh, is so frequently, commonly warning us, raising the red flags. Watch out. He says, literally, watch out for greed. Watch out. He says, greed will blind you. Greed will darken your eyes. It'll make you not see it. Watch out, he says, be sure to give your money away. He doesn't say money's bad. He just says, be sure to give your money away. Be sure to give to other people. Be sure not to spend all your money on yourself. 
Be sure when you fill up one barn with goods, not to build a bigger barn. Like be sure when you choose between God and money, which everyone has to do to choose wisely. And he says this because we, he knew we were and would always be at risk of greed. And that's why he always talks about money, saying things like this. This teaching that I'm about to share, I think is his most sort of seminal, um, foundational teaching about money. If you, if you don't take anything else today, take this concept from Matthew chapter six, verses 19 and 20, all right? Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Treasures, treasures. Think about that word. What, is he, what did Jesus mean when he said treasures? When I hear him talk about treasures, I can't help but think about about Tolkien's masterpiece, the, the trilogy of the, the Lord of the Rings and, and his masterful analogy that he created with the symbol, the icon of the one ring. And, and if you're not familiar, <laughs> I'm a nerd, but like the one, the one ring was so desirable and so beautiful that it was tempting to everyone. And those who became entranced with it could think about nothing else other than pursuing the one ring ring. And whenever those who were so lucky to pursue it and to find it, whenever they attained it, once they attained it, they could think of nothing else than holding onto it. And they held onto it for dear life. And they always inevitably, invariably called the ring, the precious, my precious. And when I hear Jesus talking about the treasure, your treasure, I think he's, I think he's talking about your precious in a similar way, because in the, in the Lord of the Rings um, books and movies, like there's this, this thing that happens to the person that attains the treasure that they disintegrate around it. They hold it so tight, they can't hold anything else. There's no room in their hearts. And so they just forget to eat. They forget to fall in love. They forget to be generous and they just disintegrate around this object, their precious, their, their treasure. And once they have this, if they're lucky enough to have this one thing, then it will all have been worth it. Everything they gave up, their health, their well-being, their relationships, whoever they had to step on to get the, the precious, it will, will all have been worth it if they have the precious because nothing else matters, okay? So what if for us, money works like that? What if for us, money has the power to become like our one ring? What if money can become the precious, the treasure? I think that's what Jesus meant and that's why he used the word treasure. And it's so interesting to me, churches get things so wrong, man. Sometimes I read the Bible and I'm like, whoa, what are, what are churches thinking? And this is convicting myself too, because I've, I've done this. There is, there is commonly in churches, in our vernacular, this idea that treasure and money are interchangeable words. Have you ever heard a pastor say, well, give to God from your time and your talents and your treasure? 
What do you think he means? Your thoughts and prayers? Nah, your treasure means something very specific. Your time is obvious what that means. Your talent's pretty obvious what that means. And your treasure always means money. This is so far from what Jesus had in mind for us, but I think it's really telling what happens to us when treasure, when, when money becomes our treasure. When money becomes our treasure, uh, we're at risk succumbing to greed to the point that the treasure becomes the precious and the precious becomes the master. Money can be for us like the one ring was in those books and movies to the extent that once you pursue it and once you're lucky enough to attain it, everything you gave up to get it will have been worth it. The relationships you overlooked, the people you used and stepped on, the ways you've let your health go, everything was worth it if you can just have money. And listen, this is not hyperbolic. This is not like one out of a hundred of us. Let's just be honest and own the fact this is a universal, baked in American red-blooded Western problem. This thought process is in all of us to the extent that we will give anything in pursuit of more money, many of us. We'll give anything away if we can secure more money for ourselves because more money means more security and safety and and that's what it's all about, right? But how much is enough? When are you secure? When are you safe? We would give anything, even life. And I know that sounds over the top, but I'm telling you, it's far from it. We all know that many people, including we ourselves, would at certain points in our lives have been willing to sacrifice our lives or part of our lives in pursuit of more money. People do it all the time. Think about the ambitious, borderline workaholic person who gives themselves so completely to work in pursuit of more money that their relationships fall by the wayside. They say no to their beloved ones. They say no to their health. They, they self-medicate with alcohol or whatever kinds of drugs or substance they need just to deal with the stress. They say no to simple things like sleep and exercise. And they die before they should because they lay down their life or part of it at least in pursuit of the precious. This happens all the time. It's not that uncommon. Some of us are doing it right now. And we've all known the really tragic cases of those who who did what I just described. They pursued money their whole lives. They found the precious. They finally attained the treasure. And then they lost it. Like, Like Gollum in the books, right? Where he just loses his mind when he loses the precious. Who am I without the precious? And then tragically, so many of these cases end with someone taking their own life because what is life worth without the precious? Watch out. Watch out for every kind of greed. Jesus said, don't store up treasures here on earth where they they rot and destroy and they're stolen. Instead, store up your treasure in heaven. Watch out not to make 
something like money, your one thing. Now, everybody has a one thing. Everybody has a one ring. Everybody has a precious. Your precious is found at the center of your soul. It's at the heart of your being. Listen, if you don't know what your, what your treasure is, it's the thing you would give anything to attain. You would pay any price to have. It's the thing that you are most in pursuit of. I know some of us like to think really highly of ourselves and we're thinking right now, we're my, my kids are my treasure, you know, and, and things like self-righteous things. I know, I know, I know, mine too, mine too. But you know what the devil does with that? He tells you that your kids are gonna need a lot of money one day. And there you are, All right? So don't fall for it. Jesus is always telling us, don't fall for it. So, so the, Bible, the Bible is clear on this point that there is a difference between Jesus and all the other treasures. Every other treasure that you give ultimate value to, every other treasure except Jesus will insist that you're willing to die in order to purchase it, in order to have it. Jesus is the only treasure that when you treasure him, says instead, I have died to purchase you. I have died to have you. Every other treasure says, die for me. Jesus says, I died for you. He's the only one, the only one. When he came down to the earth from heaven to do just that, to die for you, not to make you a church goer, but to bring you into a life-changing relationship with him. When he came from heaven and died on the cross, he left behind unimaginable riches, I guess you could say, because what he had in heaven far surpassed the things we attribute to money, security, success, safety. He had all of that in heaven and he chose instead to die like a poor, petty thief, naked on a cross. And that kind of sacrifice that Jesus offered with himself, naked and vulnerable and ashamed, was symbolic of an even greater sacrifice that Jesus was offering up in that moment. The, the cross and his nakedness and the shame and the pain, all of that was real. But what was really happening was on a more cosmic and eternal level. Can you wrap your head around it? The idea that the creator of Calvary, the creator of the hill where the cross stood, surrendered himself to die on the hill that he made. Can you wrap your head around this idea? that almighty God was brought down to a point of total weakness. Can you imagine this, this, the God of all riches and wealth and power made powerless, the Lord of life brought to death, the light of the world laid in darkness. Can you wrap your head around what that meant for Jesus? The idea that Jesus would go through that hell and even according to Christian tradition that he descended into hell itself after that, can you imagine the indignity of it? Why did he do it? 
Why would he allow himself to be put through it? He didn't deserve any of it, so why? I'll tell you why. He did all of it to prove to you that as far as he's concerned, you're the treasure. In his eyes, you're the precious. You, the same you, you look at the mirror in the, in the morning and go, wow. He looked at you and said, there's nothing I wouldn't pay to have him, to have her, to know them. There's no price too high. I'll do it because they are my treasure. And that's why Jesus came and laid his life down. That and nothing else, no other reason. That's why he did it. So that you might make him and not money your treasure. You might place him on the throne of your heart. That's why he alone deserves that place. And when you do make that decision, and I hope if you haven't, I hope that you will today make that decision to give Jesus his proper place in the throne of your heart, at the center of your being. When you do, he will work on you. And one of the things he will work on is your greed. And he will work on your greed in a way that leads you toward generosity. Generosity is the antidote to your greed. And so every time churches talk about this, there's always the question, well, okay, pastor, but I'm a, give it to me straight here. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a black and white guy. What's the line? Like, what's the, what's the quota? I need to know how much I'm required to give in order to be considered a generous person, pastor. So where's the line? And of course, most pastors, most churches would say what? 10%, the tithe, right? We like the tithe. It's a nice tidy number. Biblical, the tithe is a good idea to start with. And this is not what you think. It's, this is where you're like, well, he's going to try to give us to give everything to the church. Uh-huh. It's not about the church. In fact, the same principle applies to the church. The church better get our head right around this too, lest all of you get generous, give all your money to us, and we decide just to build bigger buildings and put my name on it. God forbid. And our board wrestles with this all the time. That's not who we are or who we want to be. And so we must resist that trap that churches fall for all the time. And so he'll work on you to make you a more generous person. And that 10% threshold is a nice sort of number to target. Most Christians give between two and 3%. That said two and 3% of our, of our income away to church and charity. 10% might be a sacrifice for you. And that's I think that's really the question. Where's the sacrifice? Because the tithe is not the gold standard of generosity, according to Christians. The cross is. When we look at Jesus, what example do we find of a generous heart? We find a man who gave himself away as a sacrifice and not a tithe of himself. If Jesus from the cross had said after 10% of his blood fell out, well, boys, I think we're done here. And they flew up to heaven. We would still be lost in our sin. Jesus gave all of himself as a, as a generous, loving sacrifice. And that's our aim. That's our goal is to become one day at a time. Don't get overwhelmed with this. One day at a time, one step at a time, a little more generous than we were before. And I can always tell when someone's in love with Jesus because they're always looking for someone in need. People who are in love with Jesus are always looking for another way to give 
to someone in need or to some organization or some church or whatever because it makes them happy, because it makes them more like Jesus. That's a sign that you're overcoming the sin of greed. And so when it comes to how much or how much is too much, how much is too little, whatever, the question is, when you give, does it hurt? I hate to be that crass about it, but does it hurt a little? Do you give enough of what you have away in order to, to the extent that, that it changes your lifestyle? <laughs> like if you give what you give and then it doesn't, you still have the same vacation plans? I don't know, it's, I don't know that, that can be considered a sacrifice, you know? But, but if you're giving in a way that causes you to change what you would have done, causes a little bit of pain or somehow, then you're on your way toward generosity. And, and, so, and so, you know, it's easier to look at richer people and say, well, they still serve that fine wine at their parties. Or they, you know, if you, if you can get yourself to the place where you don't act on impulse, you don't buy a car just because you can't, you keep yours for a little bit longer, even if, even if it hurts you, which is silly. Like how many of us are driving cars that hurt us, right? I don't know, maybe a few of us. I've seen a few of you and I've judged you. I'm just kidding. No, it's, uh, I, I'm just kidding. It's, it's silly, but none of us are really hurting in that way, but I'm not sure it's a Christ-like generous gift unless it stings a little, unless we feel it, unless it changes us. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, had this great adage about generosity that he preached a sermon about money one time and he said, look, Christians, we are called to work as much as we can within the bounds of Sabbath and all of that, called to work as much as we can to earn as much as we can. Hey, that sounds good, right? Work as much as you can, earn as much as you can. Then he said, earn as much as you can to save as much as you can. Some of you are still okay with that. I like to save money, builds my bottom line, net worth. But he said, save as much as you can so that you can give all that you can. And there in that simple idea, earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can, we find, I think, the heart of a cross-shaped bottom line. And so I'll just wrap up by asking you simply, what is your precious? Where is your treasure? Where are you making your most um, venturous, uh, uh, most difficult or, or the investments that stretch you? Where are you investing yourself? Is it in the things of this world or are you investing yourself in the things of God's kingdom that will not be destroyed or stolen or desecrated? when I think back to all the ways people here at the story have invested, and this is all I know, this is what I'm gonna talk about. I've seen people benefiting from the ministries, podcasts, groups, events, sermon series, all these things we've done with the resources you've given and the life change you see in people over six plus years, there is not a price tag you can put on that. That's high enough. There's, there's not a price tag for that. That kind of value, that kind of return on investment is out of this world and it cannot be taken away. That is what we should be living for. That should be our treasure. Would you pray with me?
Jesus, thank you for this reminder, Lord, and I pray that you would just walk with us through this, God. It can be so overwhelming because most of us are so far from where uh, your gospel is calling us to, this idea of total generosity. It seems so far-fetched for us because we're in over our heads as it is. And so help us to feel your grace right now and just take us by the hand, Jesus, one day at a time, one step at a time, away from the greed of our past and toward the glory and the generosity of our future with you. We thank you for this reminder and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.